What is remarkable about that conversation that took place in 1961, 20 years ago, is the prescience of it. It's the time we're in now and the kind of people who indeed have breakdowns now. I was thinking, Tennessee, how close to now that all your players have been. I, uh, I think that um, the violence, uh, the brutality, has certainly increased. Uh, we've had several presidential, we've had two, one presidential assassination, several attempts at assassination of president, one a couple of days ago, and we've had uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King, and uh, we've had uh, Governor Wallace uh, crippled for you know, virtually incapacitated for life. You must remember that you are now talking to a man who has gone through what uh, Blanche went through. He was, I've been in in an asylum and uh, I've, I've survived. <laughs> I've come out. <laughs> Whether or not I'm a crackpot, I, I said in the earlier interview that I was not. I think I'm a man who is uh, uh, who has the San Andreas fault built into him, <laughs> and uh, if you didn't, I'm not confident of the future. I was thinking, are you? You know, are you different? I mean, you're the artist, of course, who see these things. Is Blanche Dubois, T. Lyle Shannon, or Alma Weinmiller? T. You still get uh, that T. Lawrence Shannon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, Alma Weinmiller and the others who are considered strange. Tennessee Williams, they would say, that as a Tennessee Williams figure. But are they so different? Really, or is it that their sensibility is such, as many of us are fragile, that at a time of such brutishness, they do break down. I find friends of mine among the most sensitive who have indeed had nervous breakdowns, to put it mildly. So many people you wouldn't expect to crack up, they do suddenly. They live behind a facade, you know, which uh, society expects of them, and they manage to maintain that facade up to a certain point. Then suddenly, a pressure shows how thin that facade is because it cracks wide open. Mm. I think, is there such a thing as a complete person? You said incomplete people. Is there a, who is a, com what makes a complete person, if there is any such animal? Oh, perhaps one could be a complete idiot. <laughs> I don't know what, what other form of completion is offered to, to humankind. Your plays, Tennessee, I'm thinking from the very beginning, it was here in Chicago, of course, on that uh, Christmas time, the winter of 45 it was, was it mm. not? When we first met Amanda Wingfield. It's the winter of 1944 and the early spring. Spring it was. The spring of 45, we, uh, we spent about three months here at the little, at the Civic Theater, yeah. And there we saw Amanda, mm -hmm. gallant, Mm -hmm. with her sham sense of humor. You spoke at the very beginning of this conversation some 20 years ago, you spoke of a double, a double legacy of yours. A mother who 
you found charming, at the same time putting on an act, and a father was somewhat different, and you inherited both streaks. And later on, you recognized your father as having more substance than you originally thought. Oh, uh, all of my fighting spirit comes from... No, both of them were fighters. <laughs> they, uh, actually, my mother, who was only four feet 11, uh, conquered my father, who was six feet. <laughs> and, uh, but he, uh, he adored her. Uh, yes, well, I have a double legacy, it's true. Many, a multiple legacy. Thinking back and before going to St. Louis, you were in Mississippi, and you were the grandson, not too affluent, of a Episcopalian, Episcopalian clergyman. Episcopalian clergyman whose salary was around 100 a month. <laughs> we moved from parish to parish in the South, you know. And then... Um, I went north uh, at eight, but I soon returned south. Now, I don't want to do it, just be reviewing my uh, my rather well-known, rather overexposed biography. <laughs> Is there something we can talk well, let's about? Let's talk about yourself and theater right now and the plays since 61, yourself and what you've been... your vision, what you've been striving for and indeed in many instances accomplishing. So where do we, last time here, we'll talk about your current plan, but the last time here was Zelda and Scott and Close for a summer hotel, summer hotel. For which I've rewritten, and uh, I carry around with me a great satchel full of nothing but manuscripts. Uh, I'm rather puzzled by the fact that uh, so little of my work is produced in Ameri in New York anymore because um, I have theories but they're not the sort of theories I wish to express right now. I have much better luck in England and in Europe. You've just, even in Japan. You've just touched on something interesting and that's uh, New York and American commercial theater and a playwright. In European theaters, a playwright of your stature, you know, the playwright of a country, of a society, is always honored. No matter what the play is that he writes, mm -hmm. there's tremendous respect for his work. They may like some better than others, but somehow he, they, you have to start as though you had written nothing before. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing fact that, I tell you, when you play, they, they pick it up as though you were a beginning player, as though there were no past. Talk, I think I think I'm hitting on something. It's as though we have no sense of history or past, whether it be a society or an individual, in this case an artist. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> but that but it does. It is true, yeah. I think that every American writer has suffered terribly from that. Uh, I happen right now to be reading the collected letters of Ernest Hemingway they're heartbreaking, what that poor man went through after, well, his top work was, of course, Sun Also Rises. Farewell to Arms was uh, also great work. Uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, they tell me, was a great work. I rarely read a piece of fiction that's uh, three and a half inches thick. So I only read bits of that, but there was always that impeccable, that matchless style. 
does this have to be? I mean, we come now to the question of... Yet here was a man who'd so desired death at the end that he tried to walk into the propeller of an airplane. Then he tried to leap from the airplane, tried to break the door open and leap from an airplane. Finally, he blew out his brains with the elephant gun, something of the sort. <laughs> he accomplished his death. I'm thinking about your about yourself and the plays you've done. All, there's always this lyric quality to your plays, as a in the language itself has been. I, I'm not the first, because this, this has been one of your hallmarks. But the heroes and heroines are always a particular kind of person. Who I think, perhaps in all of us, there is this kind of wanting, and not quite certain how, how to face up to it against. Uh, in a society or a framework that's so rough and tough. I tell you, I have two kinds, at least two kinds of dominant blood in me. And that is, I am a fighter. I really am a terrific fighter. I had to, uh, I had to summon various allies, but I managed to uh, decline to be thrown out of a hotel suite on the day of uh, opening. And that is fighting Williams' blood in me. (laughs) (laughs) Battling Williams. (laughs) Battling Williams, yeah. Battling Williams, 145 pounds. Many battle scars. (laughs) But there you are, surviving and and creating throughout. By throughout. Thank God, thank God. I think when I stop creating, I'll be willing to stop breathing. But you'll be doing this. This This is... part of your very being. Could we talk perhaps about those clothes for a summer night and those sun- uh, su- the sun- clothes for a summer hotel uh, about summer the Fitzgeralds? Hotel. People thought it presumptuous of me to write about the Fitzgeralds, yet I felt that I had experienced all of their problems, both their problems, I mean. I'd experienced uh, uh, my sister's madness, which was very like Zelda's, and my own, actually because I had a period of mental breakdown. And then I had experienced uh, early fame, as had Scott Fitzgerald, and then uh, the humiliation that follows when you fall out of fashion. So it's fashion we're talking about, too, aren't we? No, fashion is a word. When you fall out of favor is perhaps a preferable word. Favor and fashion. Isn't, Isn't fashion... Uh, as, as an a la mode aspect, a baffo hit, the kid of the moment. Well, I've never... Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I hope you're not making fun of me. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a phrase Lillian Hellman once used, talking about his very themes. The mm. kid of the moment mm. is what they think of it. But Maybe uh, American society does think in those terms. I just want to still have available to be great artists because my work needs great artists. My work should not be produced in a studio with a narrow uh, proscenium, which does not permit me to have the amount of space that I require. I I am lucky in having uh, excellent actors here in Chicago, but uh, I need to work on a big stage. And then before I ask you about your current play, now being formed, in progress, I assume, mm. at the Goodman. 
the roles you've written, primarily for women, men as well, of course, but you're one of the few male players. I don't know any, any other male who is able to somehow get into the psyche of a certain kind of woman. And so the actresses, mm. from Lorette Taylor on through Jerry Page to Maureen Stapleton to Margaret Layton, you have magnificent actresses, and yet the roles have been, for them, so incredibly juicy. Uh, yes. I think people are inclined to overlook uh, certain uh, very vivid male roles that I've created, like the gentleman caller, General Connor in uh, The Glass Menagerie. Uh, they don't remember the tremendous power, perhaps, of Big Daddy, although I don't see how they could forget it. And uh, T. Lawrence Chandler was a thoroughly masculine person, despite his sensibilities. I think... Um, I, I think in any number of plays I've written strong male parts, but... Uh, Fortunately, I'm able to create yeah. female parts, too. I think perhaps I do them better, yes. And I'm saying very few male playwrights have been able to do that. Uh, generally, they have the strong male. When your case, is both. That's the thing. Big Daddy is a perfect case in point. And here, Burl Ives was a singer. Burl Ives was primarily a singer. And suddenly became a fine actor. Because it was a, I, I think it was primarily his own talents as well, but the, the idea of Big Daddy is a great study of Southern power, of power, you might say, in some community, in any community. That's right. I was somewhat offended when, uh, with the early sequences of a television show called Dallas, because uh, the man who owned the great uh, estate there in Dallas, uh, he seemed to be somewhat uh, a copy of Big Daddy, and also, quite coincidentally, Barbara Bel Geddes, who played Maggie and, and Captain Hot Tin Roof, was in that series, too. But then I thought, oh, well. Soon, they soon ran out of uh, material resembling cat and they going into all kinds of... You other know, the, well, of course, there is a... You're talking about now cannibalism. There is a cannibalism in the taking, stealing. You have, well, you mentioned Dallas, because you can't compare the two, Dallas and what you've done. And it's remarkable how commercial properties, and the word is property, how producers or the schlock makers and shakers are able to steal from others' good and, and profane it. But this is part of... Uh, do you remember the movie Red Shoes? It wasn't a great movie. I remember about ballet dancers, yes. But there was a wonderful scene uh, in which a young playwright, a young composer, saying, the man stole my work. And the producer said, forget about him. There's more where that came from. <laughs> And so, in a sense, it's it's you too. Oh, I don't allow it to bother me much. <laughs> Tennessee, the the uh, play now being performed in the small theater at the Goodman, a house not meant to stand. Yes, it's not a very uh, catchy title, but when you see the play, it, it becomes a very pertinent one. And uh, as I said. Uh, I don't think I can afford to work again in the studio at the Goodman because um, uh, I've had to support both the director and uh, the man who, um, his friend, who uh, provides the music. I've had to support them. 
And that tastes uh, quite uh, a feat. <laughs> Expensive. I was thinking of the play itself, but <laughs> the theme, I haven't seen it yet, so it's ridiculous well, even to talk about it. Am I going off on some no. tangent, which is quite <laughs> non-pertinent? Well, still, I was thinking of the, of, the, of the play itself. The play itself? Yeah. Uh, I rarely can uh, arrive at a um, a definitive opinion of a work until uh, a year or so after its definitive production. <laughs> now, I think of the substance of it. The substance of it, yes. Uh, the substance of it is about... Uh, uh, the difficulty of holding together an American family in the South or anywhere. Uh, it depends a great deal on humor, and yet the end is has a kind of uh, the sadness. It's tragic comedy. It's also gothic comedy. It, there's going to be a third draft of it, but it will need require a a large scale, a large stage, and uh, you just said gothic comedy. And the word gothic attracts me here because if you think of something. Well, the comedy is way out and somewhat no, grotesque. Also, gothic meaning something beyond the reality, and at times horrifying. At times, it breaks the fourth wall. People address, suddenly address the audience. Yes. You know, aren't these gothic times we live in? Indeed, yes. I think so. I don't think anyone quite believes what they're hearing on uh, on newscasts. That's what I mean. It's as though life has caught up with art. Mm -hmm. It's as though your, your play has seemed to with people somewhat say far out, different, so far removed from me. Yet the very we spoke of the prescience of your comments in the 1961 conversation. We're talking now 1981, mm -hmm. and that which was considered way out the character situations in your plays, so highly dramatic and theatrical, are really realistic now. Oh, yes. Society has, um, society has followed that pattern. <laughs> and more or less. And uh, we're living in times that seem to be in a society that seems to be struggling, struggling fiercely against disintegration. And so when you write of the disintegration of a certain... This family in the house not meant for stand, to stand is fighting desperately against disintegration. Uh, it's leaking in the rain. <laughs> there are several pails set around to catch the leaks. The house, in a way, is a metaphor for our society. house we live in right now. Yeah. There used to be a song in the um, palmy days, we'd say, in the innocent days, a song called The House I Live In. It was supposed to be America, a metaphorical song, mm. and how great it is. And you're saying the house has leaks in it. And many, 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 many. Uh, one occurred in Washington a couple of days ago. You know, and also the people live in it. Now we come, because you deal with people who are not simple, they're not... Uh, cartoon figures and they have their flesh, but also the ambiguities in them. In, in an earlier play, Summer and Smoke, 
Alma Weinmiller is bucking both uh, a Puritanism and her, you know, at the same time there's a wildness. There's a phrase said about your characters, caged, or perhaps you used it, caged within our own skin. That's true, yeah. Yes, Alma mm, was uh, caught in this cage of Puritanism, but there was battling inside her something even stronger, which was her desperate need for love, for realization and love. And that prevailed in the end to the point where she was willing when uh, finally she gave up on the great love, great romantic love of her life, she was finally willing to settle for attractive younger salesmen whom she met at the, in the park. <laughs> railroad station. Railroad station. Or later on, in eccentricities of Matt Nightingale, she goes to the railroad station to meet them, too. Oh, by the way, you, you're not afraid to vary on a theme. No, you? no, no. Because eccentricity of Nightingale became a very another form of summer and summer. Yeah, it's my prep, uh, it's the one I prefer, although they made an opera of Summer and Smoke, which is much uh, more moving than the play, I believe. I didn't like the diagrammatic uh, quality of Summer and Smoke so much. There are one Lee two. Hoybe? Lee Hoybe's yeah, made an opera yeah. that PBS is now going uh, acquired. So we come by you and music. That's interesting. Uh, I've always loved music. But your words and the music, so they lend themselves, do they not? Well, yes, I I presume they must. Uh, I uh, pay a great deal of attention to cadence, you know. I won't write a line unless it has cadence. And uh, if a a syllable is uh, omitted, uh, the cadence uh, falls apart, and I insist on its restoration, (laughs) or I rewrite the sentence. I thought during this conversation I might slip in. Lee Hoybe was a guest here once, might slip in. He's a very dear man. And might slip in one of the passages from mm. the opera. Oh, she would. Yeah. yeah. And that'll fit perhaps right here. <laughs> and so, a, a, as we listen to this passage, the words of Tennessee Williams, the play, the original Tennessee Williams, the music is Hoybe's. We come back to the question of theater, lyric. I suppose the word lyric theater would be uh, a description of, of your way, wouldn't it? Yes, I think that's as uh, good an overall uh, uh, description of my the th- kind of theater to which I aspire as any. Yours is continuous, isn't it, Tennessee? That's the, the writing. It's, it's a continuous matter with you, no matter what difficult you may experience outside. Yes, yes, even after all this uh, struggle with the hotel manager to uh, not be evicted uh, on the day <laughs> of the play opening, uh, he uh, was still able to write a bit. <laughs> you know what I call this? This is Tennessee battling the elements. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny, sir. You know, it's W.C. Fields and the picket fence. You know, you know bat- what W.C. Fields had on his tombstone? All in all, I'd rather be in Philly. <laughs> <laughs> but you right now, now here's this play, and in, in, in your case it's continuously battling and creating, and this is it even after this play, no matter what happens to it. And I, 
I trust it will be a success eventually as you will rewrite it and be produced. You will continue as far as your writing is concerned. Yes, as I remarked a while ago, uh, when my... Uh, when I'm no longer able to create at an accept what I regard as an acceptable level, I'll turn in my uh, chips. chips. Yeah, cash in there. Chip. We got a long way to go for that. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I'm going to say something personal. In that interview, in 20 years ago, you said I'm 50, and I said, "Well, that's just the beginning." And you said, "Don't kid me, my friend. That's about it." And that's 20 years later. Well, I'll tell you a funny story if you're in the mood for one. Uh, when I was 24, I had my first heart attack. It got me out of the shoe business. And you, uh, you selling shoes? No, I was a clerk in the in a branch of the International Shoe Company in St. Louis. Terrible job for which I was paid $65 a month. Well, uh, I worked at night with black coffee, and it affected my heart, and... Um, at 24, I had my first heart attack. I went down to Memphis to save my grandparents. And uh, one evening, I had a recurrence of the palpitations while at uh, dinner with some friends downtown, and a lady doctor was summoned. She said, uh, your heart's, uh, you're, you're too uh, uptight now. I'll examine you in my office tomorrow. I went to her office, she examined me carefully, and she said, don't worry too much. You might live to be 40. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're talking about something that happened 46 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much for doctors, so much for prognoses. I tell you, as long as you're devoted to a certain... to a, You have a certain commitment to a thing... It's astonishing how you can hang in until you fulfill that commitment to your best of your, you know. You never defeat death altogether. No. Although I was out with the black bishop last night who claims that I've been reincarnated several times and will be again. <laughs> Are we talking about battling, survive, act, you know, not being pacific about things? Not you can't be. Those people uh, who think you can uh, get through life without a terrific struggle uh, are deluding themselves, especially when it comes to the world of theater. You always have to have your gloves on. It doesn't mean you always have to be uh, macho, macho. Oh, I couldn't be that. There are moments when I can be when I have to be, though. What's the question of... of of uh, struggling and battling. And because you battle, you survive to live another day and to fight another battle and to create another play. That's, uh, that's my purpose in being. My raison d'etre, <laughs> yes. You, you do many things. We're talking about story. You've written, you write poetry, of course, and some excellent stories. The Roman Spring... The, uh... Roman Spring and Miss Stone, yes. Stone. And uh, The Nightly Quest, that was another novella. Sometimes I think my stories are really a better writing than my plays. And you work in several forms. They're not so well known, but they're You better. work in several forms. Yeah, of course. You Poetry. wrote a very good ballad once for the singer Jerry Southern. 
if I remember right. Which one? You wrote a song. I've got it here somewhere, if I could find it. You wrote a song. You don't remember writing a song for a singer well, Jerry written, Southern? I've written a number G of uh, lyrics meant to be put to music, yeah. yes. Paul Bowles, the marvelous writer and musician, has put a number of them to music. Unfortunately, I can't carry tunes, so I, I so can't. So lyricist? Huh? Lyricist, poet, uh, story writer, playwright. Playwright is... Is it all right to say son of a bitch? <laughs> I suppose that, that's an art form in itself, isn't it? It's something you learn in show business. <laughs> someone would say, some would say to Tennis about uh, Thomas Tennessee Williams right now, Tom Williams, they'd say, uh, Tennessee, you sound bitter. I'm, I'm, this is my joke for now, you sound bitter. That's an understatement. Bitter? No. No, I'm not bitter. I just think I recognize life. Uh, I began to recognize it rather early when I thought I might drop dead at any moment. <laughs> and uh, now I'm less bitter, you know. I, uh, I try to get a, a, as much pleasure as I can out of each day as it comes along, because I know the days go short as you reach. <laughs> November or December? September. September. Uh, November, in my case. Yeah. Or maybe uh, late <laughs> December. December, way to go. In <laughs> <laughs> any way, the thing is not to be scared. It's very important not to be frightened. That's, could, could we stick with that for a minute? Yeah. This matter, everybody gets scared one time or another about something or other, but it's to overcome that, isn't it? I'm, when you first... You face fear and not blink your eyes. Yeah. That's very important. Because you have to face fear. It's part of your... It's a protective device built into you. Let's go back to... Well, on that... Let's go back to 44, the spring of 44, mm -hmm. a young playwright, Glass Menagerie. Yeah. The thoughts at that moment when the play is being seen here at the Civic Theater mm -hmm. in Chicago for the first time. Do you remember your, your feelings at that moment? I was always happy, uh, relatively uh, happy in my youth. Uh, uh, of course... Uh, a love life was much more accessible. <laughs> and that has a lot to do with happiness outside of work, you know. I'm thinking about you, the young playwright, work as yet unknown, the unknown, work as yet untested. And there you are, and there's Claudia Cassidy and Ashton Stevens, and it, uh, people didn't know about the play, and they said, you must see it, and then, bang. There's Lorette Taylor and the others and then there's New York, and then there's you. Yes, even with Lorette Taylor. Now, I trust I'm answering what, uh, the question. Uh, even with Lorette Taylor, the audiences were not uh, altogether, uh, could, you know, uh, sold on the play. They considered it downbeat. They considered it uh, as a, a, eclectic in form, you know. But this great Claudia Cassidy, her spirit is uh, so indomitable and so beautiful. 
and the late Ashton Stevens together. They sold Chicago on the Glass Menagerie. I think we would have expired without them. We certainly would have, I think, even with Lorette Taylor. But uh, any play of mine which is uh, in a new genre, and almost all my new plays now has its own genre, its own, uh, its own uh, type. This one particular, particularly, uh, the precise name of the uh, genre which to which it belongs, I haven't yet discovered. I will in the third draft, perhaps. But it certainly is not going to be uh, realism or anything like that. I, I have a restless nature. I want to move from form to form within drama. So there's a new form. Uh, there's a, another advance here. Yes, but unless it's supported by the critics, uh, it's not going to fare well any more than Glass Menagerie would have. Not that I think it's the equal of Glass Menagerie. It isn't. Could there be a play... Suppose there... This is an academic question, perhaps a silly one. Suppose there were no critics... Critics serve a purpose, no doubt. Claudia Cassidy and Stevens certainly served a uh, most important purpose in making the audience aware of something that was rare and rich. Mm. Uh, but I think of critics, New York critics specifically, because they're so powerful, and what an individual can do or a couple can do to a play, and the audience doesn't get a chance to judge for itself. Now, the question comes up, suppose there were no critics. You know, this is one of those crazy questions. Now that television has become so accessible to nearly all people, uh, the theater needs uh, needs to be promoted, uh, subsidized. Uh, we need people who love theater to criticize plays and to, to guide public taste, which has been corrupted to a large degree by... Uh, uh, a certain cheap entertainment. My question was uh, an academic one, obviously. We, of course we need critics, as you say. To, mm. There has to be that because of what happens. There will always daily. be. But uh, you, you said something about subsidized theater, so we come to the age-old question. Uh, when we speak of a subsidized theater, say, by the state, yes. as in many European countries, mm. I'm talking about Western European now, let alone Eastern, uh, People say, oh, the heavy hand of censorship will be there, but there's another censorship here, and that's the box office. Yes, and that's why we need uh, these critics with their passionate love for uh, serious theater to, uh, to sell our work, to point out to the public that it is offering them something that they will not be offered by TV networks, except PBS. Now, I'm thinking about uh, governmental subsidized theater. I don't think they, uh, there are many uh, strings attached to what they subsidize. Now, the Goodman is a subsidized theater, yet uh, Gregory Mosher is quite uh, uh, daring, and he will put on plays that you wouldn't expect to be popular successes. 
and the critics just, uh, have often gone with him and helped him to put them over. Now I was thinking of actually government subsidies. Like we know, for example, in Germany there are many s civically subsidized theaters, state, city subsidized. Yes. In Sweden and England, we know this is so, and there has been no censorship in that sense. See. I think I think they uh, I think they are probably wise enough not to interfere too much. Tennessee, what uh, thoughts come to your mind now? Anything you feel like talking about? Any base that we haven't touched? You feel like stepping on now? Uh, not really. Uh, not really, studs. We've talked about about as much. Uh, not in my professional life now, it may be you're drawing close to a conclusion. Uh, at any rate, it is extended over three score and ten years. I mean, my life is extended over three score years and ten. I've been at the, working in uh, theater since uh, 1934, first in amateur, by 1940 in professional theater. I don't think we've left out anything of importance uh, that I have to say. You said plenty, but you're writing even more. And uh, this is a belated congratulations on your 70th birthday. And to continue now, we think of the place. How old was Sophocles? I you haven't know? investigated. You haven't investigated. He was, he was about no, he was about 80, wasn't he? Or something? I've uh, uh, yes, but they lived longer in those days. The air was purer. The water was purer. There were less uh, crackpots with pistols loose in the world. The air wasn't as polluted. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> Tennessee Williams, playwright. Magnificent one indeed. We look for more of you. Congratulations on what you've done. And, of course, a salute to what you will do. And thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Studs. You can give us some music, I thought.